0: Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. We are everyday people following Jesus every day. I want to tell you a story uh, about a completely overwhelmed person. Uh, And the story is not about me, although I am finding as I get older that more and more of my growth and personal development seems to be tied to how I function through being overwhelmed by something. Okay, so this thing, the parenting, this whatever is overwhelming. Uh, How do I keep moving forward? And one of the things that I find great solace in then uh, is that scripture is full of stories of overwhelmed People. From the very first book of the Bible in Genesis, where Abraham is well past retirement age and God tells him he is going to have a child, and not just a child, but God is going to turn that child eventually, many generations later, into a nation. Fast forward those many generations, and there is Moses who now is leading the start of this nation. He knows nothing about starting a nation. He is completely overwhelmed to the point that his father-in-law comes to him and says, dude, you are in over your head, you need some help. And I don't know what the Hebrew word for dude is, but I'm sure that's what Jethro said, dude, need some help. And he got him some help. Uh, One of my favorite stories is a guy named Gideon who is trying to hide from everybody. He's so overwhelmed and God finds him and said, oh, you have no idea what overwhelmed looks like. Let's live out an interesting story. Into the New Testament where you have Mary and Joseph, these two young adults who had to be overwhelmed at angels telling them that they are going to raise the savior of the world. And it being Christmas season, the story of Mary and Joseph and their baby seems like a really good place to start this morning. So I'm gonna start someplace completely different. Uh, 700 years before Jesus, there was a guy named Isaiah. And Isaiah would become a prophet of God and he would speak hard truth to the people and he would predict some things about Jesus that we will get to later this morning. But before he was a prophet, he was just a guy just a guy who was called into this prophetic ministry by God in a completely and utterly overwhelming way. So I wanna read you the story of this call. And what I'm going to ask of you, because some of this, for some of you, this is gonna be familiar, for others of you, uh, this is going to be a brand new story. Either way, I would love to have you place yourself in this story. Picture this story. Picture the colors, hear the sounds, feel the sensations. If you have to close your eyes, close your eyes. I'm going to read the first eight verses of Isaiah chapter six. There will be a quiz. You're going to have to turn to your neighbor and tell them a thing. So just be be prepared. (laughs) Somebody's like, Jesus, Holy Spirit, Bible. Okay, anyway, none of those is the right answer. All right, Isaiah chapter six, starting in verse one. This is what Isaiah says. It was in the year King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. They were calling out to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations and the entire building was filled with smoke. Then I said, it's all over. I am doomed for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips and I live among a people with filthy lips, yet I have seen the king, the Lord of heaven's armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. He touched my lips with it and said, see, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. Then I heard the Lord asking, whom should I send as a messenger to the people? Who will go for us? I said, here I am, send me. So would you picture it? Burning coals, a robe that filled the temple. So here is your quiz question. You're gonna to turn to your neighbor and you're gonna give your answer. And I will tell you, there is no wrong answer. Online, go ahead and put this in the chat. Some people just took a deep breath. They're like, okay, good. Whew. It's really worried if I got this wrong, they were gonna kick me out. I'm not. There is no wrong answer here. Here's your question. When you picture this story, what color is God's robe? I know, only the most significant questions this morning. Only, but anyway, turn to your neighbor, put it in the chat online. A few seconds here. When you picture this story, what color is God's robe? All right, all right. By show of hands, how many people pictured black? Okay, how many people pictured white? Whole lot of you, okay. How many people pictured some other color? Okay, awesome. Uh, last night, uh, my, my youngest was, she pictured some sort of ombre brown thing. Like, I don't even know how, to just pick a color. What is this three colors? Anyway, uh, I, uh, I picture it uh, black, um, and, uh, and I know why, actually, I picture it black, and I'm apparently the only one who does, uh, but before we get to that, let's go back to the overwhelmed Mary and Joseph and their brand new baby, Jesus, the baby of Paradox this divine being who is wrapped in human skin and dependent on two human young adults for his survival. A king, but also a baby. A baby, but one with a mission. Lots of people showing up in awe and wonder, asking questions that there are no answers to in their minds as parents of who this child of theirs is going to become a couple of people seem to have some idea. Simeon, the prophet, well, they didn't see him as a prophet until this moment, but here's what he said prophetically. Verse 34 of Luke chapter two, then Simeon blessed them. And he said to Mary, the baby's mother, this child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall and many others to rise. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. As a result, The deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword, Mary, will pierce your very soul. Something about the mission this baby is on is going to reveal the deepest thoughts of many hearts. And for his mom, it's gonna hurt. Next person we see really seem to get who Jesus is going to become is Jesus's cousin, John. And John and Jesus, don't, maybe don't think of them as cousins like maybe you grew up with. Perhaps you grew up with a cousin right around the corner. Or you got together all the time for family functions. Some of you grew up more like I did where my cousins are scattered all over the country and I barely ever saw them. This is more like that. They lived 80 to 100 miles away in a time where you couldn't just drive 100 miles to go to your aunt and uncle's house. So they probably saw each other some festivals, family get-togethers, maybe but it's not like they grew up together. Where we see them interacting is actually when they are adults. John grows up to be this troublemaking preacher, telling the, tr- the people the truth of, of God that they need to hear and the truth about some of the people in power that the people in power did not want to hear. And it got John in a lot of trouble. One day he's preaching Uh, to these crowds of people. And Jesus is on the outskirts of this crowd. And he says this, "'The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him "'and said, look, the Lamb of God "'who takes away the sin of the world. "'He is the one I was talking about when I said, "'A man is coming after me who is far greater than I am, "'for he existed long before me. "'I did not recognize him as the Messiah.'" but I have been baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. John's saying, I didn't recognize him until now, but this is the lamb of God. What does that mean that Jesus is the lamb of God? One of those churchy terms you may have heard thrown around, but what does it actually mean? To to dig into that, we actually have to go back to the very, very beginning. In the beginning, God made perfect people in a perfect place. And part of what was perfect about these people is they had the ability to choose. Because one of the most beautiful things about humans is that we can choose to love other people. We can choose to serve even when it's hard for us. We can choose to give even when it would be safer or easier or more protective of us to not. We have the ability to choose. But one day these people chose wrongly. They believed the lie that God was holding out on them. They believed suddenly that it wasn't going to be enough to do things God's God's way, but they had to do it their way. That they wanted the power and the control and the fame and the glory. And so they reached for that forbidden fruit that, they, well, that was not theirs to have. And when they took a bite of that fruit, scripture tells us that sin entered into them and more than that, shame entered into them. They realized they were naked and they felt ashamed. They, they'd been naked, it just didn't bother them at all. And suddenly suddenly they were ashamed and they hid And whatever art pops into your mind of Adam and Eve hiding behind bushes or covered in fig leaves, too often that art causes us to skip over one of the most meaningful parts of the story. That when God met them and he did go and find them hiding and when he met them, he clothed them. He had to kill an animal to do it. Part of his perfect place, his perfect creation He skinned this animal and those animal skins became clothing, became covering for the shame the people were feeling. And so we see that one of the consequences of sin is death. Now the people were infected now with this disease really called sin. This disease that was going to be passed on to every generation that came after them, that has been passed on into us. And God knew that in this perfect place, unless he intervened in some way, other than this animal that he killed, in this perfect place, everything lived forever. And sin could not be allowed to live forever. And so he ejected the sin by ejecting the people from this perfect place. And he said, you cannot be here. And we see the second consequence of sin is separation from God. The consequences of sin our death and separation from God. Now, this may seem really harsh. They made a mistake. They ate a bad apple. Okay, great. But to love these now imperfect humans well and to deal with the shame they were feeling, death was necessary to protect this perfect place that God had created so that there would be some good eternal place then it was necessary to protect it from corruption. Fast forward many, many generations over a lot of really good stories. And we get to Moses that I mentioned earlier and the people of Israel. They've been slaves in Egypt for centuries. And God intervenes and frees them. He says, you are my people and I'm going to set you free. And he does all kinds of miraculous things to do that. And eventually the Egyptians uh, eject them from Egypt and say, hey, you got to get out of here. And now they find themselves in the desert knowing nothing about governing themselves because they've been under Egyptian control for generations and generations and centuries and centuries. How do we start a new nation? And God says, don't worry about it, I got this. And he gives them rules and rituals. And he said, if you follow these things, your society will thrive. And what's interesting to me is that baked into, built into these rules and rituals, these things we call the law of God, baked into them is the expectation that the people will follow them perfectly. This is how a society thrives, so you will follow these things perfectly. And at the same time, built into this law is the expectation that they won't be able to. For example, in Leviticus chapter 19, uh, Leviticus is the book where a lot of the, the rules and a lot of the rituals are laid out. Um, and it is about exciting to read as a legal textbook. But there is some really good nuggets of truth in here. For example, Leviticus 19 verse two. Yeah. Uh, God says to Moses, give the following instructions to the entire community of Israel. You must be Holy because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Holy, perfect. God is saying, you have to be holy because I'm claiming you as my people and I'm holy, so you have to be too. But that's chapter 19. The first seven chapters of Leviticus are laid out to be, here's what you do when you break the rules. Here's what you do when this doesn't go well. In chapter 16, God institutes what's called the Day of Atonement, a whole day that they will celebrate every year that they will set aside to go, God, we messed up and we are in need of forgiveness. Atonement just means something that makes up for the mistakes that you have made. When we use the English word sin to to mean missing the mark, we made a mistake. We have broken the rules, the law of God. And God spends a lot of time saying, yeah, yeah, when that happens, here's how forgiveness happens. So on the one hand, be holy. On the other hand, here's a day of atonement and a whole lot of rituals about finding forgiveness. So if he knows that we're going to mess up the rules, And he builds in a way to forgive us. Why bother giving a law at all? For the same reason that parents give rules to their kids. We know they're going to break them hopefully less often than they follow them, but we know it's going to happen. (laughs) Kids in the room are giggling. Okay, We, we give them rules because we are saying this is the best way to go. I'm a little further down the road than you. This is the best way to go. I'm telling you, stick with this and life will go better. Like a good parent, God wants what is best for them and he wants to maintain a really good relationship with them. So he sets this path forward for them. And even more than that, because he has claimed them as his people, that means they are his representatives in the world when he set up this nation generations and generations before these people were ever around, he said, I am creating this nation so that the world will be blessed through you and the world will know me through you. So here are the rules, the laws, here's how you will represent me and bless the world. The law is given because of relationship and representation, because of relationship and representation. God is saying, I want to maintain relationship with you and I want you to represent me well. In Exodus 34, 10, he says this. The Lord replied, listen, I'm making a covenant with you in the presence of your people, says to Moses. Moses, I'm making a covenant with you. A covenant is a bound relationship, a forever relationship. He says, "I'm, I'm hitching myself to you and I'm, I'm doing this, uh, normally a covenant came with, with some sort of uh, collateral. The only collateral here is the people's character and God's character. So we're doing this just based on our character. And God knows, we already talked about this, God knows that we will fail to live up to our end of this covenant and he chooses to enter into it anyway. I'm making a covenant with you in the presence of all your people. I will perform miracles that you that have never been performed anywhere in all the earth or in any nation, and all the people around you will see the power of the Lord, the awesome power I will display for you. God's character will not change or fail. He makes this covenant knowing that ours will. And yet the only way to truly represent him is to be holy and perfect. If we are going to be a representative of a holy and perfect God, that would mean we have to be holy and perfect. And so he says he will make us holy through his forgiveness. Back to Leviticus verse 20. So set yourselves apart to be holy for I am the Lord your God. Keep all my decrees by putting them into practice for I am the Lord who makes you holy. We don't generate holiness. It won't come from our own perfection. So for those of you who have been living life trying to prove to God and to yourself and to everybody else how perfect you can be, take a deep breath. It's not going to happen And that's okay. Part of the reason it's not going to happen is because we are infected with this sin disease. We are corrupted by it. 3,000 years after Moses, a guy who came after Jesus named Paul wrote this in Romans chapter three. For everyone, oh, sorry, I forgot this part. Recognizing where holiness comes from. We keep the law so that we are recognizing where holiness comes from, that it comes from God and not from us. Okay. Romans chapter three, verse 23. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. That's why we're, we're recognizing where holiness comes from. It comes from God and not from us because we are all infected by this sin disease. We all fall short of God's standard and justice. We are born into a world that is infected and broken by the consequences of sin Disasters, destruction, people constantly hurting each other. We fall short of God's justice. This is not the perfect world that God created, and we are not those perfect people. But again, the recognition of that truth is baked into the law that we won't be perfect. And yet, somehow, we need to recognize the impact, the hurt the injustice caused by our sin. Why? Because there's not very many things. I won't say nothing. There's very few things more hurtful than when you approach somebody who has hurt you and say, hey, this hurt. And they say, come on, not a big deal. Get over it we don't recognize the impact, we don't recognize the hurt we've caused, that just doubles down on the pain. So how do we express that a hurt is unjust and is a big deal? Parents, how do you express to your kids that this thing that they wanna blow off and say it's not a big deal is actually a big deal? The word is consequences. Whatever consequences you put in place to say, look, Sally, I know it's not a big deal when you hit your sister over the head with a doll, but if that escalates to a shovel, we're gonna have problems. So we're gonna put in consequences now so that we don't get to that point. Consequences. And as we talked about, the consequences of sin are separation and or death. So God could have simply ejected humanity from this perfect place and said, I want nothing more to do with you ever. When he made the law for the people of Israel and they broke it again and again and again, at any point he could have said, that's it, I'm done. He could have simply wiped us all off the face of the earth and said, these people are a mess. And we would go, yes, we are, we are a mess. And he's, that's the end of y'all, we're done. But God made a covenant. God is committed to his relationship with the people. God is committed to his relationship with humanity, with us. So the consequences will not be immediate death for us, just like they weren't for those first humans who did get ejected from the place of eternal life, who did die eventually. But in that case and in how the law is set up, The consequence is not death for us or permanent separation. Instead, the consequence is the death of an animal. That's how the law is set up too. It's those first seven chapters of Leviticus, the day of atonement, talking through the sacrifice of the life of an animal to recognize the cost and the hurt of our sin, the injustice of it. And that is really weird to us. And I, and I get that. It would not have felt nearly so weird to them at the time, fairly normal worship practice. But for them, the cost of that animal would have been really significant. They're starting up a whole new nation. These animals are their way to trade for things that they need. They're their access to food and milk and so on. And so to recognize and remember the cost of our sins, God requires people through the law to bring their prized possessions, their crops, their animals, whatever it may be, to the temple in the center of town. This place of worship they've set up, they bring it to the temple to be sacrificed, a recognition of our sins and of the holiness that only comes from God. Now there are also rituals set up to cover the sins of all the people because as people brought their individual animals, it would not have been just to cover their individual sins, but they would have thought in family terms. So I don't know what cousin Joe did, but sure, God, we're gonna cover him too. We're gonna cover the whole family. But there were also rituals set up that the high priest, the leader of the temple would do to cover for the sins of the entire nation. A pure animal without Defect. So this isn't, hey, bring the bull with the broken leg. This is your best animal, your firstborn. You don't know how many sheep you're gonna get this year, but we're not saying, well, if I get enough, I'll bring that one. No, no, bring the first one this prized animal would be sacrificed in the temple and it's blood sprinkled around a room called the Holy of Holies. The high priest would take this animal into the center of the temple, this place where they believed the presence of God dwelled on the earth and he would sacrifice the animal in God's presence and he would sprinkle the blood all over this room that was separated from the rest of the temple by a curtain. And we go, gross. Because we think of blood as being gross and germy and full of who knows what. And that makes sense for us. They thought of blood primarily as being the source of life, which makes sense. That person was alive. This stuff came out of them. Now they're not. If that stuff had stayed in them, they'd still be alive. It must have something to do with being the source of life. Okay. So for them, this sacrifice means that rather than death and separation for us, we are given life through the blood of another creation of God. Now, it does have to be the right animal There's there's no cheating the system here. God was very specific on which animals for which things, and it does need to be the firstborn and the pure one and without defect and, and all those things because cheating the system would be an injustice while trying to ask for forgiveness for an injustice, and that's just not gonna work. The required sacrificial lamb must be pure without defect, which brings us back to Jesus, the one John called the lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. Much later, after uh, Jesus had fulfilled his mission, and we will get to that mission in just a second. The author of Hebrews was reflecting on the old system of rules and regulations and rituals and on Jesus Christ's part in it. For the record, Christ, not his last name, it's a title, right? A savior, Messiah, some of you already knew that, but just in case, so, so talking about Christ, the savior of the world that Jesus came to be. Here's what the writer says in Hebrews 10. The old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. If they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped. For the worshipers would have been purified once for all time and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. But instead, those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year. For it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That is why when Christ came into the world, he said to God, you did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings but you have given me a body to offer. You were not pleased with burnt offerings or other offerings for sin. Then I said, look, I have come to do your will, O God, as is written about me in the scriptures. Now, we don't have any record of Jesus actually saying this. It's it's a quote of an Old Testament psalm that Jesus very much knew and certainly could have quoted. But for sure, what we know is that his life And his death, the mission he was on revealed this truth, that he, with his life and decision, said, look, I've come to do your will, O God, as is written about me in the scriptures. So what was written about him? Lots of things in the Old Testament. Look forward to the coming of this savior. Our old friend Isaiah, and no, I haven't forgotten about uh, him or God's robe or its color, we'll get to that. Our old friend Isaiah said this in Isaiah 53, starting with verse three about this coming savior. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins, but he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. Isaiah predicted a savior who would not come to dominate, but to die. A savior who would cleanse us of our sins through being sacrificed which means this savior is going to have to be two things, perfect and human. Here's why. Human, because if he's just some eternal being, he can't die as this sacrifice. As we read last week in Hebrews two, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die and only by dying, could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. And then by law, sacrifice must be without defect. And for us as human beings, our defect is not in our looks or our ability to work or get the job done, but in the truth that we have all sinned, that we all fall short of God's glory and justice. So was Jesus perfect? Scripture tries very hard to point out that he was, as we might expect. In Matthew chapter four, there's a story of Jesus being confronted by the devil when Jesus is at his weakest moment. He is tired, he is hungry, and he is all alone. And all of us make our worst decisions when we are tired and hungry and all alone. And the devil tempted Jesus with the greatest temptations any of us face, pleasure, power, and glory. And because Jesus was not only fully human as we talked about last week, but also fully divine as we will talk about next week, he was able to say no to the curse of sin in a way that no one else ever has. As Peter wrote about him, he never sinned nor ever deceived anyone and in the end he was able to overcome the curse of sin for all of us we read in the stories of his life about how he was betrayed by a friend how he was falsely accused he was unjustly beaten his back striped by whips just as Isaiah said it would be he was publicly executed And scripture tells us that when he died on a cross, his blood shed for our sins, that in that moment, the skies grew dark, the earth rumbled and the curtain in the temple, that curtain that separated God's presence from everybody else was torn in two because the death of Jesus, his sacrifice of love for us made the temple unnecessary. Back to Paul. In, uh, in Romans 3, mm, I'm gonna find Romans 3. We're gonna back up a little bit before verse 23. Paul writes this. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. The sacrifice shows that God was not being unfair when he held back, when he did not punish those who sinned in times past, for he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, his justice, for he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus.'" Jesus is the only spotless man who could pay for our sins. Jesus is the only spotless man who could pay for our sins. He is the human who who was perfect. He is divinity in humanity. He died on a Friday to pay for our sins and he rose from the dead on a Sunday to prove his legitimacy. He is the one who not only sets up our forgiveness, but allows us to have the kind of relationship with God that we were originally made for. Okay, back to the robe of God, that I apparently am the only one in Calais County who pictures his black, but that's okay. I know why, and I just realized this week that I picture it this way. It was never really a conscious thought before, but I grew up, I think unintentionally taught this picture of God as a judge in a courtroom. And so this judge wears this very judgy and black robe. I I was taught this image this way, again, maybe accidentally, that God is there set to judge me, that he has his law and his rules, And he's sitting up there on his big, tall bench with his gavel in hand, ready to pound it out and say, I have failed to meet the law. And I sit at the defendant's table and I have no defense. I am guilty as charged and I know it and everybody in the courtroom knows it. And Satan is sitting over there at the prosecutor's table, just smiling because he knows how this is going down. But, but, Because I follow Jesus, I'm not alone at the defense table. Jesus is sitting there with me. And when the time comes to condemn me to hell or to whatever punishment is coming my way, I was taught that Jesus stands in front of me and he holds his arms out like he's on the cross. And that when God looks at me, all he can see is Jesus. And because he loves Jesus, he says, oh, well, when I look at the defense table, I don't see Josh, I see Jesus. And so there's no condemnation for you. What I picture God to be in this image, as I'm sitting there at the defense table, knowing my guilt, watching the judge walk out of the back room, I picture big flowing black robes that fill the room, a stern look on his face, and an expectation that he's going to condemn somebody today. Now, I think this image is problematic for lots of reasons. So trying to reframe it may not be helpful. And if you just need to dump all of this at the end of the day, that is fine with me. But I wanna try to reframe it just a little bit. God is a just judge. And he is sitting up there knowing the law because he created the law. And Satan is sitting at the prosecutor's table. Satan is known as the accuser and he is ready to accuse, and I am sitting at the defense table with no defense. I know that whatever Satan is gonna throw out, I have done, and I am ashamed of it, and I am there to be publicly condemned or whatever is going to happen to me. The prosecutor in a courtroom does not talk to the defendant. The prosecutor talks to the judge. And yes, Satan is there making me feel ashamed for everything that I have done. Although I do a pretty good job of that on my own. But he's not accusing things at me. He's hurling accusations at God. Hey God, remember this law that you made? This law that you said was perfect? Well, Josh broke it. Are are you gonna hold him to it? You said there was punishments for this thing. You said if, if these people you made broke it, that it was death and it was separation. Are you gonna follow through or not? Come on, God, you made this law. Look at the list of ways Josh has broken this thing. It is a long list. (laughs) What are you gonna do? He deserves punishment and death. He deserves to be separated forever from you. Again, my image of God is of one who is ready to go, yep, let's do it. I don't know how that's the image that I got. Imagine that you are sitting at this defense table and you know you have no defense and you know Satan is ready to make his case. And who comes out of that back room is not a judge who is stern and against you, but is a judge who loves you. Before God ever made this covenant with his people, in Exodus 34, he described himself this way. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. God is just. He is not just going to look at me and say, well, I like you. So here's the deal. We'll just pretend these laws don't exist anymore. He has to hold to the law because he is just and good and true. So Satan makes his case. God, if you are just and good and true, as you say you are, this is the law and you have to make somebody pay the price. Now, Imagine that this judge, not stern, but full of love and graciousness and compassion for you, who you know from the moment they walk out of the back and they take their place on that bench, wants your good and wants to make a way for you no matter what. So Satan makes his accusations and God says, you're right, you're right. The defendant has broken the law over and over again. And the penalty is death. Hey, Satan, I'd like you to introduce you to my son, Jesus, because he paid the penalty already. And God doesn't have to look at me through Jesus and and see Jesus and, and love Jesus. God loves me. God doesn't look at you and go, oh, well, because I see Jesus and I love Jesus. No, God looks at you and says, I love you, and I am working together with your attorney. How, (laughs) imagine a courtroom where the defense attorney and the judge are working together. The defendant gets off every time. Where God and Jesus, because of their love for you, work together to make a way. Not through a bunch of rituals that wouldn't last, but through a life given up for you. The penalty for your sin paid for by Jesus already. So that as Satan hurls his accusations, God simply says, yep, yep. But Jesus and I love that defendant. And so we've made a way. The penalty has been paid through Jesus our heavenly father made a way to be truly just and truly gracious to us. To be truly just and truly gracious to us. Jesus is the only way God could do both. Jesus is the miracle we need, but Jesus is also the most logical outcome of a God who is truly loving and truly just at the same time. There had to be a way to hold to the justice and to hold to his love. And Jesus is the way to make that happen. His love drove him to pay the penalty from the law for us. Now we believe and Jesus believes that that is a truth worth celebrating. So churches all over the world remember the sacrifice of Christ through something that we call communion. Jesus said that we should get together and have our own atonement celebration, that the day of atonement is not what we celebrate anymore, but we're gonna get together and we're going to celebrate communion. So we eat bread or cracker in our case to remember that Jesus did what Isaiah said he would do, that he would take the punishment that we deserve for breaking God's heart and we drink the wine or grape juice in our case, to remember that a life has been given up, that blood has been spilled so we can be forgiven. And often, communion is a somber occasion as we remember the ways that we have messed up. We remember our sins and and we humbly thank God for our forgiveness and that is entirely appropriate. But it is also appropriate to celebrate, because a way has been made for us. God's love for us is never ending, and He has made a way for us to experience that. So let's celebrate today. Uh, communion is in the back. And take a cracker and a juice back to your seat, uh, and we will take together in a moment. You do not have to be a member here to take communion with us. We just ask that the sacrifice of Jesus means something to you, that when you're sitting in that proverbial courtroom, that Jesus is sitting there as your defense attorney. That you have said, I'm not gonna try to represent myself in this situation because I know the guilt I carry, but I am going to choose to be represented by Jesus because I believe he has paid the penalty for me. So we're gonna celebrate together. We're gonna sing together. We're gonna take together in a few moments. As the worship team comes up, let me read this one last uh, scripture over us uh, in this time. This is also from Hebrews chapter 10. This is the new covenant. I will make with my people on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he says, I will never again remember their sins and lawless deeds And when sins have been forgiven, there is no need to offer any more sacrifices. And so dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, that is Jesus, Let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Let's celebrate together. Tables are open in the back. We'll take together in a few moments. Let's sing together as we take. So this bread represents the body of Jesus that he gave up. Sacrifice for us. So let's eat and remember the sacrifice given for us. And this juice represents the blood of Christ, the blood that was spilled so that we could be forgiven of all of our sins. Let's drink and remember. Father God, thank you for making a way We're making a way through the love and the sacrifice of Jesus that we could be in relationship with you, that we could be forgiven, that we could know your love in this kind of personal way. Thank you for forgiving us as we come with our sins and our brokenness and our mistakes. Thank you that because of Jesus, we can have confidence that we're forgiven and loved and known by you. So we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for checking out our podcast. You can learn more or connect with us online at easthills.org.